Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 15, starting at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know what his master's business does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. And our second reading can be found on page 1,248, and it's from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, starting at verse 11. That's page 1,248, Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his, heart, on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast, and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the ride on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now, Father, on this important day of remembering, we pray that we would not only remember uh, those who've died to bring us freedom, but remember and know about the ultimate death that points towards a wonderful freedom forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down.
I had my own welcome to that of Pete's uh, earlier in the service, and um, I would encourage you uh, to turn in your Bibles to the second of those two readings that Paul read for us, page 1,200, that Dan read for us, page 1,248, 1248, and we'll come to that Bible passage, Revelation chapter 19, uh, in just a moment. It was, uh, I believe, H.G. Wells who first used the phrase, the war to end all wars, Like many idealists of his time, he hoped that the sheer destructiveness of the First World War would persuade mankind to abandon war as a means of solving problems. And when you hear the shocking statistics, you'd have thought it would have been enough to have motivated the human race to never engage in any conflict like it ever again. More than 9 million people killed, 27 million wounded. On the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, in that one day alone there were 57,740 casualties and 19,240 men were killed. It was then and remains today the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army. The numbers are staggering. But today we're talking about much more than numbers Roger Carswell writes, Behind the statistics are dreadful stories of human suffering. There were widows, fatherless children, broken-hearted parents, and spinsters who never married because of the shortage of young men. Almost every city, town, and village in this land was affected. There were only 50 thankful parishes, as they were called, only 50 parishes in the whole of the United Kingdom welcomed all their sons home alive at the end of the war. And now the memorials in every community engraved with the names of local people who died are a stark reminder of the First World War. And so today, 100 years on, we feel deep gratitude for the sacrifice of a previous generation whose losses laid the foundation for our freedoms. Along with those who died in World War I, we remember today the casualties of war all over the planet, of course. And as we think of the misery of the First World War, we understand why it really should have been the war to end all wars. But desperately, we know it wasn't. For while World War I ended in victory for the Allies, still the evil forces of Nazism and Bolshevism were bubbling under the surface and were soon to be unleashed on the world so that just 21 years later, the world was plunged into the Second World War. And even when those wicked regimes were neutralised, since then, other monsters with a thirst for total dominance or a warped ideology have reared their ugly heads and caused mayhem, destruction and devastation. Today, in global terrorism, we face an enemy that is nowhere and yet is everywhere. It seems that the human race hasn't learned the lessons of past conflicts. It seems from time to time we feel the need to press the self-destruct button. So it is important today that we remember. For as Pete rightly said at the beginning, a nation that forgets the past loses its grip on reality and faces a dangerous future. It is good that this nation, along with many other nations around the world, continue to remember. And yet despite our remembering, we still seem to be hell-bent on the destruction of other human beings. And so in our remembering today, we might well find ourselves asking, will it ever change? And how will it ever change? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say that the answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In him, there is a glorious promise that he will win a war one day that will end all wars. It's here in the book of uh, Revelation, the Bible book of Revelation, and chapter 19 that we read earlier, that we read of a final war, a war between ultimate good and ultimate evil. And it's here we find our first heading, a different kind of king. This is how the Apostle John records it. Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. It's a picture of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is faithful and true and here he is riding a war horse, a white stallion. White because Jesus is pure and victorious. There is no evil in him, no desire for selfish world dominance. Never will his actions or motives be wrong. He is as pure and as unblemished as fresh falling snow. And he knows everything. In verse 12, we're told his eyes are like blazing fire. With a kind of x-ray vision, he sees everything. With eyes like blazing fire, his gaze penetrates the unseen hidden things that no one else can see. The things that go on in our lives behind closed doors, the things done in secret, but much more than that. His eyes can burn into our hearts, seeing our motives as well as our actions, seeing every thought. He sees everything as it really is. And that is both deeply worrying and deeply reassuring. It's deeply reassuring because we need someone who sees everything clearly as it is. Uh, The struggles of great wartime leaders like Winston Churchill uh, are well documented and not least of all in recent films like Darkest Hour and Dunkirk. Churchill and others in leadership at the time had the the agonizing struggle of wanting to do the right thing, making the right call at the right time, but no one had all the uh, information at their fingertips. No one had perfect intelligence. No one knew everything the enemy were going to do. No one was able to see the heart and motives of others. No one knew how their decisions would finally pan out. And so different leaders had different opinions and put forward different strategies. Uh, Some wanted to make a treaty with Hitler, thinking we could not win, believing that Churchill's decisions were reckless. The history of war tells us that the slightest change in the weather or or a, a different decision from the enemy could have resulted in completely different outcomes. So how deeply reassuring it is to know that there is one who sees everything as it really is. Seeing into the hearts of others, nothing hidden from his gaze. And what is more, this one who sees everything is faithful, pure and true. So he will make perfect, unbiased, equitable decisions. All of that is deeply reassuring today. And yet at the same time it is deeply worrying. Worrying because if you and I are honest with ourselves, we know that we are not innocent. I've uh, loved reading this book recently, War and Grace. It was Dan Walker that put it on to me. It is a book of 13 short biographies of men who entered the Second World War as Christians or who through war became followers of Jesus Christ, just as we heard of Jacob de Chaser earlier. Uh, one of those men, uh, one of the biographies in here, was uh, Michiharu Shinya. Age 22, he was a lieutenant in the Japanese Navy. His battleship was sunk in the Pacific Ocean. 
He was then captured and taken to a New Zealand prisoner of war camp where, to cut a long story short, a prison chaplain shared the gospel with him and gave him a Bible, which he read. And listen to his conclusion from reading the Old Testament up on the screen here. What I saw there was an account of humanity's struggles, its ceaseless wars. Human history is is certainly no history of peace. From just knowing this, and any optimistic view of mankind should be corrected. I grasp that the cause of these wars is to be sought in the relationship between man and God. It always comes back to the fact that mankind does not know the living and true God. There is a state of rebellion against God. In other words, the reality of human sin is the cause of wars. Now look, if that conclusion is right, on this Remembrance Sunday, we can't just look out there at the tyrants who've caused mayhem and destruction down through the years. We have to look in here, where we have made war with God and where we are in conflict with others. I need to put my hand up today and say, I know it in my life. In my pride, I so often refuse to see another's point of view. Far too easily I harbour bitterness against those who've crossed me. In my mind I think the most dreadful thoughts against those who threaten me. I can hide all that from you. I've become a master at hiding it from myself even. uh, Justifying my thoughts and actions because it wasn't my fault. I'm not to blame. But as good as my inner lawyer is at defending me, there is one who sees my heart. The one who sees everything as it really is. The one whose eyes I can't pull the wool over. And that is deeply worrying. The eyes of the Lord Jesus are like blazing fire. He sees it all. He sees everything in my life. And so it's worrying and yet reassuring that this one who is pure, faithful and true is, verse 11, with justice, judging and making war. Now that might well be a surprise to you and me. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ makes War, what is going on here? Look again closely at verse 11. He makes war to bring about justice. Human war is often an attempt to wrong, put right, wrongs right. Not always. Uh, the, the reason for the First World War is highly complex and much disputed. And we know there's no way to justify the actions of trigger-happy leaders who rush into war for political gain. But even those who lean towards pacifism can see that that many great leaders have taken decisions to declare war in an attempt to stop evil, in a desire to bring about justice. Well, look, arguably, here is the greatest justification for war. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ going to war to do justice, to bring about justice, to put wrongs right, to rid the universe of the evil that will mow down other people. Picture the scene, the exalted Jesus Christ on a white war horse. And then we read verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. There are many details here. He wears many crowns because he is the king of all. With a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. His word is powerful. He's able to strike down and rule rebellious nations. The details are all crucial. But I guess it is the fury of God's wrath that most surprises us. 
That's language we don't hear of very often these days. God's fury, God's wrath, God's anger. The idea may feel us, leave us feeling slightly uneasy. But before we reject that idea out of hand, stop and consider how God's anger is a good thing. Sometimes people say to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about, and then they mention a terrible tragedy or world atrocity. I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about the half a million people who've died in the six years of the Syrian civil war. I can't believe in a God who turns a blind eye to the indiscriminate terrorism of hateful religious groups. I can't believe in a God who does nothing about the war criminals who get away with murder. I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about the slaughter of six million Jews. And when people say that to me, I reply, and I couldn't follow a God like that either. Look, God does get angry at the slaughter and genocide under Hitler and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and in Bosnia and Rwanda and Burundi. And and if he were not angry at those things, if he were to say, oh, well, these things happen, that's just what human beings do. If If he were like that, he would be a horrible, heartless, loveless deity. No, his anger at the atrocities in the world show that he is loving and caring. And in his controlled, settled, righteous anger, he will bring about justice. That is very good news. He is then a very different kind of king. And second, we see here a different kind of war. Jesus Christ, who is, verse 16, the King of kings and Lord of lords, marches out to war. And verse 17, birds of prey are circling, gathering to feast on the casualties of war. It's a gruesome picture, but let's not sanitize the harsh realities of war today. It is horrible. The birds are circling while the enemy is lining up in opposition to Jesus Christ. In verse 19, there's the beast the personification of all evil in this world. And verse 19, the kings of the earth, all those who followed the evil one, they are lined up, ready to make war against the rider on the white horse. Two mighty armies then facing each other. Jesus Christ with the armies of heaven against Satan and the armies of the kings of the earth. It's like a scene from the Lord of the Rings. Except what happens next is nothing like those ferocious, bloody battles that Tolkien describes. Verse 20, The beast was captured. Just four words, no great battle, no immense struggle, no real competition. In just four words, it's all done and dusted. The beast was captured. And end of verse 20, thrown into the lake of fire. Here is the war to end all wars. Because this is the war that will rid us of all evil forever. And here is the great confidence that Christians have for the future. Please, our confidence doesn't lie in an unrealistic belief that we can in some way make the world a better place. That's not going to happen. That kind of post-enlightenment optimism has been found wanting again and again. Yeah, there was a day in our arrogance. Mankind believed that our rational minds and scientific discoveries would make God redundant. We don't need him anymore. That we'd be able to usher this world towards the paradise that we also long for in our hearts. Look, I've quoted it before, but I think it bears quoting again. Prince Albert's speech as he opened the great Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851. Here it is. He said, 
Nobody who's paid any attention to our present era will doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition which moves rapidly to accomplish that great end to which indeed all history points, the realisation of the unity of mankind. You hear the optimism? And it wasn't just Prince Albert. Loads of people were thinking this way. We're heading towards a glorious time of unity in the world. But what happened 60 years later, World War I, the war to end all wars. And then 20 years later, the Second World War began. And Churchill said these words, If we can stand up to Hitler, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Well, they did rid Europe of Hitler and we thank God that they did. But the broad, sunlit uplands have been darkened again and again by the monsters that rule this world. So many people have had dreams of a brighter future, of making the world a better place, but those dreams are never realised. This world isn't gradually becoming better. And Christians are not people who have confidence that in some way we can make the world a better place. Now our confidence is in Jesus Christ and in a day in the future when he will return to wrap up history as we know it, when he will capture the beast, Satan, and cast all evil into an eternal dungeon, ridding this world of all the tyrannical monsters who've caused such misery through every century of the history of mankind. That's a glorious day to look forward to. The war, that will not be war as we know it, because it will be over in a flash, in the blink of an eye, but it really will be the war to end all wars. What a day. And because it is such a terrific day to look forward to on a day like today, uh, such a day that is needed in this war-torn world, you and I might well be asking, so what's he waiting for? Which leads us to our third point this morning, a different kind of hope. If this is the Christian hope, a day when Jesus Christ will snuff out all evil so easily, then why doesn't he return and bring full and final end to all the misery on this planet? Well, the answer is simple. It is because he loves you. Uh, You see, if that day is going to be a glorious day we long for, then when he comes, he will have to cast all evil into the eternal dungeon. And there's the problem for you and me. You and I are full of evil too. Making war with those we don't care much for, causing conflict every time we selfishly put others down in order to attempt to lift ourselves up. See, on a day like today, we can't just point the finger out there. We need to look in here in our hearts. We're part of the problem of the world. And so the thought of, of Jesus coming to deal with all evil is a terrifying prospect for you and me. It's curtains for us. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ has made a way for us, even for us, with all the hatred and evil that is in our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be forgiven and purified so that we can spare the punishment we deserve and rather than have that be taken to a glorious, pure and just new creation. As we begin to draw to a close, look back with me to verse 13 and a detail that we skipped over. Jesus, the pure rider on the white horse, is dressed, you see it there, in a robe covered in blood. But this is not the stained garment of a bloodthirsty tyrant. The blood on his robe is his own blood, 
The blood he shed when he died on a cross, blood given in our place to take our punishment. Uh, This book, War and Grace, tells the story of uh, one other man, Ernest Gordon, who was captain in charge of A Company in the 2nd Battalion of the 93rd Highlanders. His unit was deployed to defend Malaya from the Japanese. In December 1941, two Japanese divisions landed in northern Malaya with the intention of driving the British forces down to Singapore Island. And during the fighting, Captain Gordon was injured and then captured. He spent three and a half years as a prisoner of war. During that time, he, along with hundreds of other prisoners of war, were forced to work on building a railway through the jungles of Thailand and Burma. The conditions were terrible. Many died. Remarkably, Ernest Gordon survived to tell the tale. And one story he recalls helps us to understand the sacrifice that Jesus made. At the end of one day's punishing work, building the railway... A Japanese guard found that a shovel was missing. Working himself into an uncontrollable rage, he screamed, all die, all die. And just as the guard was about to begin shooting the prisoners, one man stepped forward and said, I did it. The guard ran over to the man and hit him on the head with the barrel of his gun and the Scottish soldier sank to the ground. The force of the blow had killed him instantly. And then later, when the shovels were recounted, It turned out they were all there. It had simply been a miscount. The guard had made a mistake. One innocent man stepped forward to take the punishment for others, dying so that others might live. It is just a little picture of what Jesus achieved as he died on the cross. He died willingly, stepping forward, an innocent man dying to save others. We deserve God's wrath. We've ignored God and lived selfish lives. We don't at all deserve anything from our God. Jesus lived a perfect life. But he loves you. So he stepped in to take your punishment, dying a terrible death on a cross. His blood-stained robe is a reminder of that death, a death which brings forgiveness to all who put their trust in him. That blood-stained robe is a reminder of his love for you. And it's because of his love that Jesus Christ has not yet returned to eradicate all evil. He's wanting more people to turn to him so that when he does return to banish all evil forever, he will find more people being ready for him, having returned to him. And therefore spending all eternity with him in the glorious new new creation rather than being banished to the eternal dungeon. In his love, he is waiting for you to become one of his. Today, as we gather to remember all victims of war, and especially this year, those affected by the First World War, today we look to Jesus Christ, the one who can fight the final war that will end all wars. And today, if we not only look towards him, but trust him, and his bloody, painful death on the cross, then we can look forward to that day with expectant confidence. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you again today in remembrance for all those who've died for freedom of others. 
We thank you that as we look to you, we, we look to one who can bring about the end of all wars one day. And we pray that you'd help us to be sure that we are ready for that day when it comes. Ready because we've turned to the Lord Jesus, the one who brings forgiveness through his death on the cross. And so ready to spend all eternity with you forever in a world where there is no more conflict, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more war. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.